what do they say? Third time's a charm. More like 30. Let's see if you can get it right this time. Hey, it's Sachit, and this is The Conscious Creator Show. Through exclusive interviews with authors, actors, entrepreneurs, musicians, other podcasters, and all kinds of creators, we'll explore how to make a life through your art without selling your soul. The creative side of business and the business side of being a creator, if you will. We've got a host of amazing partners like Brain.fm and other amazing companies. So head on over to creators.show, that's C-R-E-A-T-O-R-S dot show to get new episodes, exclusive guides, partner deals, and more. Enjoy the show. Today, we've got a different kind of podcast on um, both sides. Joining me is Rolf Potts, who is a travel writer. And it's kind of honestly like unreal for me that we're doing this because you've written one of my favorite travel books. And 10 years ago, I think I told you this before we recorded, I went on this trip to Southeast Asia and uh, right out of college after working for a year. And Vagabonding was the book that I like read before going on that trip. So awesome. This is just pretty cool for me that we're doing this. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny that um, I met uh, a mutual friend, SJ, who's, who's been on your podcast went out on a trip to Utah recently. And she suggested that I talk to you just because I was talking about my own podcast and, and just sort of about listenership. And of course, we ended up talking on the phone yesterday and kind of got into issues. Actually, one thing that I sort of dreaded before talking to you is like, oh, God, I'm going to talk to this guy who's an expert in building my audience and scaling listeners, and he's just going to tell me that I should do only travel, or I should only do this, only do that. So it dove straight into one of my anxieties about podcasting is that I really like to do exactly what I like to do. So it's sort of this question in the terms of creativity, like creativity versus success, maximizing satisfaction versus maximizing your audience, which is a legitimate question because I think even there's podcasters who might, who might be super successful and they're, you're in year three of being super successful and they're sort of tired of talking about the same thing all the time. So I think that's something that we can really dig into because there's an idea that specifically I would like to grow the audience for my podcast without compromising the fact that I really want to talk about what I want to talk about. I want to keep learning, you know, not just be an expert in travel, but learn about non-travel topics. Is that possible? I don't know. But it goes into that idea, which, which dovetails with your podcast, which is how do you balance creativity with your business life? What's the tagline in, in your podcast? It's a good one. And actually, SJ, the, who introduced us, helped me come up with it. It's make a life through your art without selling your soul. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just the idea of trying to master the business of creativity and being creative in your business. I mean, it's, it's an important question because I think that something that comes up a lot with people who listen to these podcasts is that balance in their own life. You know, they're either someone who has sort of mastered a kind of business and they want to be more creative. Or there's somebody who's very creative and they have no way of making money off that. They have, they're really bad at building their own brand. So it's interesting that in a way we're coming to this from different sides of the coin because you're a marketing guy who's sort of exploring creativity. And, um, you know, I'm a creative guy. I'm a writer. Uh, I've been at this for a long time. I have an audience for my book, Vagabonding, obviously, which is something that everybody always wants to talk about. And we can go into that more, like the um, possible factors that made Vagabonding of all my books successful. 
but then also building an audience for a podcast. You know, do I want to have a million downloads a week? If so, what does that mean I have to sacrifice in terms of creativity and what I love to do? And if I do get up to a million downloads a week, heaven forbid, I would suddenly get bored <laughs> of whatever strategy leads to a, to a million downloads a week. So anyway, that's a very long preamble of sort of contextualizing, maybe for people listening, of how we got talking on a phone call yesterday and how we decided to just record it for a podcast. Yeah, I think it was really interesting where we were talking for, I think about like 20 or 30 minutes. And then both of us just kind of had an instinct of, oh, this needs to be a podcast. I think one thing that you mentioned that's it's really interesting is this sort of like separation between the creative and the business side. People who are like very creative and not good in business, which is where like the sort of like starving artist thing comes from. And then people on the other side, which is like people who are really good at business and not very creative, which is where like if you see in movies, like there's an, an entourage for example, the TV show, there's the director, what's his name, Billy, calls Ari Gold the suit. And I was actually thinking about this. It's like, it, if you look at it, it goes back to the days of like movies where if you were a creator, you required a lot of investment to produce what you were doing. So obviously you had to like go to the business people and get the money. There were like five big studios in Hollywood that would fund the creators and, and sort of like how that's changed. And in the 80s, um, creative artist agency started and what they did was they started packaging the creators. So instead of like uh, one actor going to do a studio and trying or a director going to a studio, what they would do is they would put together a whole movie. This is the director. This is the actor. This is the actress. And they would go to studios and be like, hey, this is the movie. You've got 24 hours. If you don't want to do it, we'll take it to all the other ones. And creative artist agency really, um, at least from my perspective, brought power back to the artist, right? So like that was one transition in the 80s. And I think we're going through a different transition now where if you look at it from the, the creative side, the means of production, especially in podcasting, there's not that much cost. You, we both have the same mic at $60. You sign up for Zoom and you're good to go. All you need is a laptop, a mic and Zoom, right? So the means of production, the cost has come down. And then if you look at like distribution, back in the, the movie days, like there were like a few places where you could like distribute movies through and studios really like, that's what they did. That's distribution. And I would actually argue if you look at books, that's the biggest role publishers play is getting distribution for a book. The most authors I've talked to who have worked with a big publisher really don't rely on publishers for more than that. They still have to do their own marketing. But in something like podcasting, even that publishing like is now sort of like, there's not one entity that controls it. You can go sign up for Libsyn and publish a podcast. It doesn't cost that much. So I think it's, it's important to also like contextualize how much the world has changed and why maybe these sort of like two dualities of like the business person and the creative person maybe don't need to exist anymore because one person can do all of it. Right. But one challenge there is that you take away all those middlemen, you take away these specialists, and sometimes those specialists can be a thorn in your side. It really depends on who it is you're working with to decide on whether or not they help hurt you or help you. You know, I've, I've had books that have come out on commercial publishers and on academic publishers and on sort of small presses, and it's all a different challenge. There's all different levels of attention with each of those levels. And so it's interesting that you bring in Hollywood as a metaphor and then publishing as a metaphor, because now we're in this position. I mean, that's probably why I ended up calling, reaching out to you after talking to our mutual friend, SJ, because I'm just thinking, huh, like I have a nice, I like my audience, but it'd be kind of nice if it grew some more. So I'll, I'll, you know, I'll talk to Satya and see what he says. And so in a way, this becomes the challenge. We've taken away those middlemen. We've taken away sort of that top heavy institutional aspect of it. And in a way it's, it's made it more fair that you can be, you can 
live in Nebraska and be an African-American woman who used to have no access to the machinery of Hollywood or of New York publishing. And now if you have something to say, then you can just buy a few dollars worth of software and have your podcast or you can build your audience and you can self-publish a book that people love because they love your other streams of creative content. But the only problem is, is that that sort of, I sort of have my feet in both worlds. How old are you, Sachin? 32. 32. Yeah. I'm 40. I'm 49. So I really broke into writing. My first bylines were for Salon.com, back when Salon.com was sort of the New Yorker of online writing back in 1998 and um, back in the dial-up era. And so it just seemed very revolutionary. Again, I, I, was, I was a kid from Kansas living in Korea and suddenly I could have bylines in a very sophisticated magazine because there were fewer barriers, but there were still middlemen. And so now those models keep changing. You know, my first, my first book was published in a, you know, Random House, very huge publisher that has since consolidated since it came out. But then we, you know, our mutual uh, friend or acquaintance is Tim Ferriss. Well, he's in a position, his audience is so big, does Tim really need to have a publisher anymore? It seems like the answer is yes, because he's still using his publisher, but there's an extent to which because you have a brand that's as big as Tim Ferriss, you ne- don't necessarily need to be depend on publishers in the way you used to. The funny thing is, is because I have my feet in both worlds, like I have social media accounts, I have a following. But as I so told you yesterday, it's more of sort of that Kevin Kelly thousand true fans following. Like my social media followings are not that huge. And a funny aside story, I, I gave a talk in... Um, in Kazakhstan about a year ago, a little less than a year ago, sort of at a State Department funded sort of Kazakh TED Talks type thing. And the Kazakh audience was so engaged. It was like the cream of the crop, just some super smart Kazakh people who'd shown up and they were really leaning into what I was talking about. And then they're asking all these questions and one woman looked at her phone and she realized I only had 4,000 followers on Instagram. <laughs> and it was, as if, it was as if she realized I just had leprosy or I was not as important as she thought I was, right? So in this age where your cachet is different now, used to be your Ivy League degree or your connection with a certain publishing house with which you had a three-book contract, now it's th- this social media cachet. So again, Tim being a mutual friend, a, point, a case in point, Tim has done that really well. I feel like I haven't done it really well. I think I have like 10,000 Twitter followers and I'm thinking I'm up to 5,000 on Instagram, but in, in a way, I sort of like posting those platforms. In a way, I don't care. Maybe I should. But again, that's that's why you're, you're a marketing guy. That's why I got in touch with you yesterday. And, and maybe, of course, for historical purposes, our audience should probably know that we're this is quarantine time. Historically, maybe this will sometimes seem like a distant past, right? So one thing that sort of drives my travel philosophy and my life really is simplicity. And simplicity has made it really easy to be for me to be a quarantine guy right? Like I don't have to keep track of a hundred employees. You know, I don't have to worry about keeping a, a content stream going beyond my podcast because um, simplicity in all forms has, has made it easier for me. Maybe, maybe it is harder for somebody who has half a million Instagram followers to just take off two weeks from Instagram and not think about it. So anyway, this is, I'm, I'm sort of thinking out loud here, but it's just that idea that I have a feat in both worlds where at, at the time I got my first byline, I was like cutting edge, dial-up internet author guy. And now I'm sort of the aging guy who's like, really, I have to find another social media platform? So, And, and you know, it's funny, like the thing you said about social media is also interesting. So so a few, few points, on, and again, thinking out loud, like you were, <laughs> one is actually the, the thing you said about Instagram. It's really interesting how many Instagram or people on Instagram relied on like travel and just new photos every day to like boost their following and what's going to happen to that in, in times of quarantine. My relationship with social media is interesting. I've actually, up until last year, not been that active. I've 
probably now spend with clients um, hundreds of thousands of dollars um, on Facebook on ads and stuff. And really, like, I like playing that role of the observer instead of the participant. And I remember reading this article. Uh, it was from a photographer who was talking about how he realized if he posted a photo with a certain filter on Instagram, he would get two or three times as many likes. And so at what point does social media, and that's just like algorithms, start driving and changing your art? I was in another discussion about podcasting yesterday, and someone asked a really good question. They're like, do you know how the Daily Drive playlist on Spotify is built? Because if you think about it, Spotify and Apple are the two big ways people listen to podcasts. Mm. And there's like the new and noteworthy section in the, the Daily Drive playlist. And that's really done being done by algorithms or, or people. So there's really like a few people that if you build, connect with them and build a relationship with could change the arc of like how your show goes. I think, I think you actually talked about how that happened for you when you launched your show off of um, Tim's podcast. And so I think like social media for me is interesting. I actually still don't like being really active. There's so-called experts who say that you should basically post, I think it was like 10 or a hundred pieces of content a day. And I just look at it and I'm like, what? Right? Like when are you going to actually do your work? And the creators I respect the most, I don't think they are that active on social media. So I feel like it becomes this thing that we're told that we're supposed to do. But I think the best people, they spend their time on their art. I remember when I started podcasting, there was this thing where like, you have to publish like every day consistently, right? And I did that for, for a while and I did the same thing. And then I asked myself this question, which is, do people care how often Kanye publishes music? Like Kanye could drop an album at like 5 p.m. on a Friday or whatever, and people are going to go listen, right? So as a creative, you have to decide, like, do you want to play by the rules of publishing every day and all of these things? Or do you want to focus so much on your art and make it so good that like those rules don't apply to you? Yeah, I'm reminded of something. I mean, something really smart that SJ said when she talked to you was the idea that it doesn't really matter how big your audience is if you don't really have anything to say. Like having something to say is way more important than than having a giant audience. So another thing that occurs to me too is just the idea of what is keeping your audience engaged. And again, this is a totally think out loud type thing because I think this is a question that I wanted to pose to Tim years ago, but I didn't. And he sort of answered by pivoting a little bit in his own podcast. But it's the idea if if your content hinges on the idea of like self-improvement and to-do type stuff, at one point, are you going to get irritated that your your audience is like, it feels like he would say, well, go do it. You know, I've, I've, I've been giving you advice for two years. Now go put it into practice and turn off my podcast for two years, right? And it feels like Tim is, is sort of, I don't know if, why he's doing this exactly, but he, he's pivoting. He's finding different venues into the sort of the performance-oriented brand that he has. But that's a good question for anyone who's doing a podcast, where is if, if your podcast you know, hinges on self-improvement, for example, how much authority do you really have to convey about self-improvement before pretty much you've run your course of good insight on self-improvement and your audience should be putting it into practice? My idea was like, everybody who listens to a self-help podcast should have a pull-the-trigger week where basically you've been taking notes. I think this is my point. I think that people listen to to this stuff to soothe themselves without actually putting it into practice. It's like saying, oh, I want to write a novel. And then you, again, like SJ said, you tell your hairdresser this and you tell your best friend that, oh, I'm going to write a novel, I have a great idea, but you never do it. So this is another dynamic about monetization and audience size aside is that what is the dynamic between an audience between someone who's giving good life advice, someone who's listening to good life advice, but maybe or maybe not putting it into practice. And maybe how can you compel people 
to be more active about putting that into practice? And can you always keep them or is there a point at which they're not going to download your Kanye? You know, they're going to move on to something else. I don't know. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I, I think like it, it also like different audiences respond differently, right? So like, for example, um, this is in the context of monetization. I work with this podcast called Mixergy and I've managed their sponsorships for five years and we sell ads at like the CPM, which is like the, the impressions per thousand, cost per thousand impressions at like four or five four or five times what normal podcasts do. And we sell out like months in advance. Like first week of this year, we were about 75% sold out for the year. And like the reason we're able to do that is because of the audience quality. And I actually think if you- Your ad rates are higher. You're saying that your ad rates are higher than your average podcast. Right. Yeah, I think that the average CPM is like 25 hours comes to, depending on discounts and how much you do, about okay. 100. Okay. And I think that well, there's, there's a few things that go into it. Like one thing I actually believe is there's a difference between like creating content that plays to the masses and creating content that's actually real. I believe that like most people actually don't want to hear the truth. They want to hear stuff that like suits them, which is like the difference between like entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs, right? It's like, if you're start talking about like how to start a company, you'll have a way bigger audience. than if you actually go down into the weeds of like, okay, this is how you actually do things. Because I think it also goes on the creative side, which is um, a friend asked me this question, which is like, he's like, let's say like you have like, five years of experience or whatever, right? Do you have five years of experience or do you have one year of experience repeated five times? So if someone's been doing something like or creating or podcasting for five years, have they just been doing the same thing over and over again for five years? Or like they're experimenting. One thing I shared with you when we were talking on the phone yesterday was when I started my show, initially I was like, okay, I'm going to go to Andrew's style and like pick a few things and like Tim's style and pick a few things and like this person's style. I was trying to like put together something because I didn't know how to interview. Right. And I actually remember I was doing an interview with SJ. I had my notes in front of me and she was giving an answer. And I just looked at her, looked at my notebook and I was like, screw this. I just shut like closed. Huh. I was like, I'm just going to go with this. One of my favorite interviewers actually is um, Craig Ferguson from late night. And like he would come on with his notes and then tear them up and then just throw them away. And so for me, like after about 10, 12 episodes, I started kind of getting bored. And I was like, I, what do I want to learn about instead of like trying to do like an interview style thing? So I'm now experimenting. Like I'm doing an interview on Tuesday with the CEO of Product School. And I was like, you know what? Instead of actually talking about all this like history stuff, I have this idea for a product in mind. You teach people how to create great, great products. So why don't you just come on the show and like walk me through how to turn this idea into a great product? Because I get to learn, people get to see how I'm curious, people get to see how, how to create a great product. So I think there's this idea that a podcast needs to be this like interview show. And I started questioning that because I was like, where does that come from? That's a good question. Maybe because it could be interviews are, are one of the original forms of audio mass media, you know, but going back to when radio was first a thing. Interesting. Howard Stern, right? Howard Stern. And well, actually, I was thinking the 1920s. Okay. <laughs> Just the idea that you have somebody in a studio broadcasting, maybe playing music, but then maybe interviewing the musician who comes to town. And of course, Howard Stern, and he has precursors in talk radio, a lot of it political, a lot of really fringe left of the dial stuff, conspiracy theorists, uh, aliens have taken over the world type stuff. This goes way back to the 50s, 60s, 70s, and even before. But what you're describing just now, I think is sort of was part of Tim's original philosophy, Tim Ferriss, of being a teacher and the idea of you're going to convey a lesson to the audience. And I think keeping the, the audience in mind is an, is an important thing. And maybe there's a point at which your outline or your the way you think the interview should go doesn't matter if you can trick 
your interviewee into teaching a lesson to the audience, especially if they if they come in with a, a certain set of expertise, you know, that basically you're just finding a way for them to instruct the audience on your behalf. I think it's interesting that you bring up the idea of, of tearing away an outline. That's actually a great way to study for a test, that basically you write out a cheat sheet. I'm thinking back to my college days, write out a cheat sheet. And by the time you, you're done writing all the salient points of the test onto a little five by three card, you can tear up that card and you've internalized it pretty well. So there could be an argument for making the outline and then not using it because then you've internalized where your guest is coming from. I don't know, what, what has worked for you as an interviewer? How do you, how do you make your interviewees deliver on behalf of your audience? So for me, um, I'll share what I, it's kind of like how I do prep now and also something I've observed other people do. So I st- have started going to people I'm interviewing and asking them three questions. So first of all, actually, I think before that, even like picking guests and like before it was like, oh, like who's a big name or all these things. Now I'm just like, who am I curious to talk to? Like, that's the first thing. And then I go to them and ask them a few questions, which is first one is um, what are topics that you usually talk about that you love talking about? So like, what is 80-20, right? And mm. for most people, they would ask them about those topics. I try and not ask them about that because I'm like, you've probably done like 50 other podcasts. You've talked about the same thing over and over again. You're probably bored. So the next question I ask them is what are things that you want to talk about? you don't get asked about. And that really gives me really good insight because people are like, oh yeah, like this is something I'm so interested in and curious about and no one's asked me. So when you start with that, it like puts the person in a different place. The third thing I discovered accidentally was uh, I started going to people that know the person I'm interviewing really well and asking them these things. So I'd be like, one, what do they usually talk about? What should they talk about? And then I asked them, so if you've known them for like two or three years, what are you curious to ask them about? And I think what it does is it's like, because they've built a relationship for two years, they've already talked about most things. The questions that they come up with to ask them are really insightful. And I think I've seen Tim do this. When I started the interview, and I usually have started like just starting the interview with this, which is, so I spoke to someone that's really close to you, and I was told to ask you this. And I think it does a few things. It shows that you did research. It shows that it's not going to be the same thing because they're like, who did you speak to and what did they tell you? <laughs> and I think it's a combination of these things that like, my philosophy now is driven by this quote from uh, Sally Hogshead, which, uh, Sally Hogshead, which is um, different is better than better. So I'm not trying to create a better interview. I'm trying to create a different experience, both for the guest and the audience. So that like, if they listen to it and if they listen to like 20 other podcasts with the same person, they're like, oh, this one's different. I think that's going to become increasingly important for podcasters as podcasts saturate the market, you know. It feels like, again, we're using, we keep using Tim Ferriss as an example, but he's the guy we have in common. He got in on the podcast train slightly later than the pioneers, but pretty early. And by the time I got in in 2017, it was probably after Prime. It was probably not the best real estate. Like I probably if I really wanted to establish a listenership for people having a lack of other things to listen to a couple of years earlier, if not five years earlier than 2017 would have been good. Well, now like every comedian, every actor, just everybody who has um, an ability to carry on a conversation and, a, and sort of a brand to talk about, including inside business, they're making podcasts. Now, maybe they won't all last. But it's, we've come to the point where I appear on podcasts a lot, a lot more than I used to, several times a month, because people think, oh, yeah, that Rolf, I, I read Vagabonding. I really like that book. I want him on my podcast, and we'll talk about Vagabonding. Now, I have not gotten tired of talking about Vagabonding. I'm just obsessive enough about travel that I still love to talk about travel. And I was actually, I was, it was a radio interview yesterday. I was on Pauline and Arthur Frommer's show yesterday. And I was just so excited to be talking about travel again, since I've been cooped up in my house during the, the COVID-19 era. But 
as you have observed, that doesn't necessarily apply to everybody. I think some experts are sort of tired about talking about their expertise. And in an age of podcast saturation, one way to be interesting is to reach into another aspect of their humanity, which is interesting. You know, my podcast is called Deviate with Rolf Potts. The original strategy was to do exactly what you just described, basically find a prominent person and have them talk about something else that they're not usually asked about. Well, it's actually deviated another way that basically I've sort of followed the little wandering monkey of my imagination into things that interest me. And so when I talk about death and dying or the fate of New Orleans or certain aspects of music or the uh, science of dinosaurs or other things that has interested me, I'm so genuinely interested in those because they aren't my area of expertise that I'm not a deviate. The deviation starts by me going off travel topic. Whereas I don't talk to a paleontologist about brushing his teeth. I talk to him about dinosaurs because it's something I don't know about. I talked to Ian Mackay, the singer uh, for Fugazi, uh, the great singer for Fugazi. And in a way, I didn't want to talk to him about like basketball because I wanted to talk to him about music because I was excited. Like I had Ian Mackay, this guy that I'd always respected on my interview. I'm curious, like, is there still a deviation in the things you talk to them about music? Like, yeah, is it the I same mean, as what other people interested in music would ask about or is it like a little different? It is. But the funny thing is, is the deviation with the musician ends up being travel. The deviation with the paleontologist ends up being travel. So like the paleontologist I talked to, Kenneth Locavara, like you actually have to travel and live rough. You're in Argentina, you're digging up bones for three months. That's a really interesting travel situation. So that was a deviation in that podcast that was interesting. You're a punk rock musician, you're touring Europe. Well, guess what? You've got to travel too. And so that's something that Ian Mackay and I talked about. And he had some really strong opinions, you know, that basically he made a strong argument for the fact that getting gas in Germany is just as real of a travel experience as going to the tourist destinations. So it's funny how as my own attention deviates, it deviates within this deviated topic into how travel touches it. And so you could disagree with this. I'm curious because this is how I originally approached you with some ideas for diversifying my audience, that in a way, it ends up becoming a personality-driven podcast that people are like, I started listening to this to travel and maybe every second episode of Rolf's Deviate podcast is about travel. But I also sort of think he has an interesting way of thinking. I like his personality. So instead of a topic-driven person, like one thing I just occurred to me, like I I sort of have two people have really given me a lot of listeners. One is Tim Ferriss and the other is Ari Shafir. Now Ari's audience and Tim's audience are completely different. I've joked that Tim's audience know exactly what they want to do in life and they have a plan so they they can retire with $5 million when they're 35 years old. Whereas whereas Ari's audience love vagabonding, but it's the only book they've read in the last five years, right? And so it's just, they're both wonderful people, but they just have a different intensity towards life. Mm -hmm. But where Ari's audience differs than Tim's Tim's audience in terms of how they are as listeners is that they listen to Ari because they like his personality. Ari might Mm -hmm. talk to Rolf Potts one week, a comedian friend another week, and then some random dude he met in Cambodia the next week. And the continuity is Ari Shafir. I'm sure there's an extent to which Tim Ferriss listeners like his way of looking at the world, but he has a very much more specific set of deliverables that he goes into. So maybe that's sort of, that's the line I'm walking now is like, do I want to be a better travel podcaster or will I trust that people either will like the personality behind my deviations or they'll go off and listen to a Disney podcast? Yeah. So uh, two actually, two points on that. Um, I'm glad you brought this up. So first thing is, I think like most good shows are host personality driven. I actually am tr- trying to like set up these experiments to do podcasts where we take away the host completely. And I'll, hmm. I'll share that after. But um, I do realize like most podcasts are like host driven, right? Like if you look at like Howard Stern, host driven. One I really love, I don't even know if it's a podcast, but it's a YouTube show is 
hot ones by on YouTube where they like go in huh. and like sit. Basically, it's like him and a guest, and they they eat chicken wings at like different spiciness levels. And the last one's like really hot. Like you'll see like Gordon Ramsay, it's like crying and stuff, right? And the thing that that's really interesting to me for on on that show is if you hear the questions, they are so precise. Like he's done his research. And there there's some people who don't prepare at all. What I realize is like there's that like Steve Jobs quote, right? Which is like you can't connect the dots looking forward. We can connect the dots looking backward. I think for most people, there is still that sort of like line that you can draw through everything that's always been the same. So in your case, it's clear it's travel, right? So like if you're talking to a musician, you're talking to them about tours and stuff. I think for Tim and having done marketing for him, which I won't go into detail because that's all under wraps and stuff. But the one thing I can share is like, it's really simple. Like if you look at the arc of his content for the last 15 years, it's about being efficient, being productive, optimizing, and it's about peak performance. And it's interesting, actually, he's, he's, it's going through a shift recently where if you listen to the last one or two years, it's more about psychedelics. It's more about the inner game. Into the outer game, right? He was on a, he did an episode with Brene Brown where he actually shared, he's like, one of his biggest fears is he's losing his audience because he's now shifting to the inner game because he's talked about the outer game for so long. So I always think like there's a line like that you can draw. For me, it's, I've always been interested. So like to give you a little bit of background, I've been on the business side because I believe my creative side wasn't good enough for a long time. So I figured out the story last year where like when I was young, I actually used to love to do art. But the art, like I would always like compare my art to my brother's and I was like, it's not as good as his. So like around like seventh or eighth grade, I just stopped. And what I realized subconsciously, somehow I ended up being on the business and marketing side for creators because I felt like I couldn't be like that, right? So that intersection of creative and business has always driven what I've done. And that's kind of like what I'm doing with my show. So I think like for most things, there's always a straight line that you can draw. And that's always different for a person because people are interested in different things, they're different people. And as much as you own that, that's what makes you unique. Well, I, I don't have an outline, but I have a little notepad here. So I wrote down growth market. It feels like what you're doing, jumping way back in our conversation, because like the Hollywood system or the, uh, the New York publishing system has changed, because basically about 15 years ago, New York publishers just sort of shrugged and said, okay, you can promote yourself better than we can. We'll try, you know, we'll, tr- we'll try to get you reviewed in the New York Times, but if you can find 50,000 social media followers, then that's going to do as good as me. But in a way, this melding of creativity and business is kind of the future, for better or for worse, that we no longer have, well, we can hire a specialist like you used to be, or you probably you still are like a marketing specialist, but more and more creative people are going to be expected to manage their own business, their own marketing, their own promotion. And more and more, less so, but I think just as equally, business people are going to find that their world is enhanced by being creative. You know, this summer, uh, last summer, I ran a big idea boot camp in Paris and I had a, a small class, uh, it was a premium class, of people who are sort of vested in the business world. Some of them are more vested in like science or medicine. Not really creative worlds, pretty technical worlds. They loved the creative aspect of our Big Idea Book Bootcamp mm-hmm. so much. And they were great students because oftentimes when you get an artist and they're in your class, they're looking for the muse. You tell them to do something and they're waiting to be inspired. Whereas the person who's a business person, they just do what you told them to do. So they're really good students. But then one challenge that got through is that they often in these business settings or like in a, in a, you know, a medical setting or a law setting, you don't have permission oftentimes to be creative. Having permission to be creative is fun, but one hurdle they have to get over, like if they want to write, if they want to take their expertise in business and make their own four-hour work week, they have to 
give themselves permission to be creative, but also start thinking in a creative way. I'm a big Scrivener nerd. I don't know if you use Scrivener or not, but just the idea is of that cultivate a less technical part of your life. Start keeping, saving your ideas. I, I promote Scrivener. I keep my ideas in Scrivener. <laughs> and then suddenly you have this, this beating heart inside of your business or your law or your medicine world that will allow you to sort of keep your feet in both streams, that you can speak to your technical proficiency in a creative way that will allow the general audience to really embrace what you've mastered in your world. So again, I think that what you, that your approach is going to have a future for a long time of melding that the business world with the creative world weighted in both directions. So you know what? I don't even think that's actually that new because I was thinking about it when you said that. Um, I feel that the best people I've met are interested in in multiple things. So there's this book Range that talks about I forget what the word is. Um, what's that word? When you're interested in like a bunch polymath? of different things. No, not polymath. I mean, I'm just going to look this up because this is going to... Somebody else recommended that oh, book, Range. Range, generalist, generalist, Gen- right? So like, yeah, yeah. what I'm thinking about, for example, is um, one of my favorite books is uh, Powerhouse CAA, which is about that agency that controlled Hollywood. I've been fascinated by Hollywood because I think those models apply. And uh-huh. they were talking about how when um, they sort of discovered Tom Cruise and found Tom Cruise and Tom Cruise from, when, from early on when he would go to sets, he would like go talk to the director and like ask him questions, go to the guy like who's operating the camera and ask those questions. So I think like people who are sort of like going to like want to become the best, they realize that like this is the thing that they're doing, but if they understand the things around them, that it actually makes their thing better, right? So like if you're an actor, if you can understand how the cameraman like moves the camera and what he looks for, then that'll make you a better actor. So I think like that's, it's just like, it's, it's that like curiosity. And I think the thing you said about permission is interesting because I feel like, permission isn't given, it's taken, right? So like, I remember with Mixergy, for example, I didn't have any experience managing sponsorships for a podcast, but I saw that like Mixergy wasn't making enough. And I went to Andrew and I was like, hey, and I had to build a relationship with him before. So like, he knew I was good at what I did. I was like, hey, like this thing with sponsorships, I don't think you're maximizing the value. Like, can I take a shot at it? And like, don't pay me anything. If this works, just give me a percentage on the back end or whatever. He was like, sure. Because like, he'd seen me like improve other stuff. And I remember going, starting to sponsorships. I went to like four or five other podcasters and like people who have blogs and stuff and just asked them like how they thought about it. And saw that like a lot of it was like driven by the like CPM number. And I was like, it doesn't make sense. Like, because let's say like you have a, some TV show actor and then Brad Pitt, right? The sort of like the engagement from their followers is not going to be the same. So you can't pay them the same for a thousand followers because maybe Brad Pitt's followers are way more engaged. So why didn't that apply to podcasts? So I got on the first call and I was like, but the sponsor was like, Hey, like, I'm curious, like how much are you willing to pay for a customer? And they gave me the price. And I was like, so do you think we can like get you like five or six customers a month, given our audience and given what you know about the podcast? And they're like, yeah. So I was like, okay, so like six times, whatever that is, is the price of the sponsorship for a month. And they're like, that sounds good. And in that we basically doubled the prices. So that was me not asking for permission, but being creative on the business side. And I think there's so much more room to be creative on the business side than mm. people think there is. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Did you have a metric for uh, measuring audience quality? No. I've, I've been trying to figure that out. I think, I think a lot of people have. Like, there was all these like, things like cloud that would like, figure out like, how, what was your like, social audience worth. I think it's more instinct. Okay. I've realized a lot of the stuff that I've done that's been like, like that, like those like, sort of like, inflection points, has just been this like, creative instinct to try something and see if it works. So was that like percentage wise, 
how much of that was creativity and how much of that was just like cojones, you know, just swaggering up and saying, yeah, pay me twice as much. Because that, from, from a business standpoint, some people might interpret that as, oh yeah, you know, that was bold. Yeah, I think it's all three. And I think it's like combining all three. Because if I didn't understand their business goals, I wouldn't have come up with that idea of changing it from CPM to like how much their customer is worth. So it's sort of like, it's that best, best example of like combining both the creative and the business element. And I think what I've seen for me is maybe it started with being bold, but now it's more like, I'll see this. And I remember like when I was younger, I would like question, I was like, wait, why isn't it being done this way? Like, am I crazy for thinking that if you just make this switch, it would just be easier? And now as I've gotten older, I've started trusting that more. And I was like, I just see things differently. What I realized is like, so let's say like this, we're talking, right? Like there's people, there, or there's like the first person, you're the second person. If someone else is watching us, that there's a third person. And then there's the whole like four dimension perspective. Since I was young, I've more seen the entire system than focus on like the players, if that makes sense. Okay. Like okay. I'll just see kind of like, oh, like this fits in with this, this fits in with this. Going to a grocery store. Oh, if they did this, like they could optimize like lines like this way. I just always saw those things. And that's where I think too is like, some of these things are just like, you can literally draw a straight line because you always just kind of like did things a certain way. I'm actually curious for you, was travel something that came about as you got older or was it always something that, that you were interested in and you always did? It was always something that I was interested in, though it's, it's funny now that in retrospect, it feels like I started traveling when I was young, but when I was young, I didn't feel like I was young. So like I didn't have a passport until I was 25. Well, now that I'm in my late 40s, that feels pretty young. But at the time, you know, I knew people who had passports when they were 10. So I think that desire, I think maybe this is why Vagabonding is, is sort of a philosophical book as much as a, a how to travel book. So I think there's a certain class of Americans, and maybe from any country, just sort of part of your upper middle classness dictates that travel is part of your lifestyle. Well, I wasn't upper middle class. I was sort of bullseye middle class and also provincial middle class. And so I didn't really know that many people who traveled or has had passports or anything. So in a way, my desire to travel was never uncoupled from my desire to live life fully. You know, that when I read poetry and I was inspired, it inspired the travel part of me. And so there was never separation. There was never, it was never compartmentalized in the way of a, of a upper middle class kid. I just, I sort of built my own travel philosophy out of desire rather than having it given to me. So, so something I'm curious about, because I think even in this, like, I don't think your thing is actually just travel. Because the reason I read Vagabonding and people read Vagabonding over other books, it's not about travel. It's about doing travel differently than most people do. So hmm. I'm curious, like, was that a theme for you when you were younger? Not like, it doesn't matter actually like what you did. Like you would always like do things differently than, or see things differently than other people. Yes. I mean, it, I mean, sometimes that can, it can be self-congratulatory to say, oh yes, well, I've always seen things differently than other people. I, you know, I think there's, there's always a mix. There's sometimes we're just sort of doing things in the same way as everyone else, but then there's this desire. And I think that's where, where this lie, where this lay was this desire to be different when it didn't seem like the normal way of doing things made sense. And in fact, that's, that's one of sort of my standard stories is that in America, we're, we're taught that hard work will pay off with the life that you want. Well, nobody worked harder than my grandfather, who was a farmer in Kansas, right? Well, when he retired, he didn't, couldn't really enjoy his, his retirement for, for health reasons and for the, for the health factors in my grandma's life. And so I, I learned that the hard way when I was young. And so that was a big motivator. It's like, well, obviously that dictum, the idea that you will be rewarded from hard work, well, that doesn't really pay off exactly. So sort of what's a more soulful way to live? What's a way that I can sort of benefit from 
the dynamism and prosperity of American society without having to sort of play by these rules that keep us in, in a holding pattern. And so in some ways, vagabonding was a letter to my 17-year-old self saying, look, you don't have to play by those rules. You can be a little bit different. Because I was of a generation where travel was accepted, but it was sort of seen as sort of an irresponsible counterculture hippy-dippy thing. And Mm -hmm. that's fine. The counterculture has generated some great ideas, but the counterculture is also given to cliches. And so why does travel have to be an irresponsible thing for upper middle class people? Why can't you just go and travel into the world and make it deep in your life. The funny thing is, is that in tandem with technology, since my book has come out, there's been the rise of digital nomadism and other ways of people who no longer hide their travels from their resume, that travel is actually an active part of their education, as it always should be. It helps that I was raised by teachers, you know, who sort of taught me to make everything in education. And so I think that mindset, if not travel specific, that mindset of questioning things and trying to find the best way to do things. And not just the best way to do things in the terms of most efficient, but the most soulful way of doing things or the way that can lead to the deepest satisfaction or to maybe help other people at the same time. That became a way of doing things. And I think that's why uh, vagabonding resonated. Because another thing that I always tell people is that my editors, some of my editors and some early reviewers said, well, Rolf Potts doesn't teach you tips on how to fold your socks when you pack your backpack. What kind of travel book is this? And I think readers understood what some of those critics and editors didn't understand, which is that it's a big picture thing. You know, that travel can be a metaphor for so many other things in life. And you know, what's interesting is in that, I I sort of like see the difference in your style, let's say like compared to Tim's. So for example, um, it's both like looking at things in a different way and questioning things, right? But yours is more about like soulful and all these different things. And that's why it's like, travel for like three, four months or whatever. We, we talked about how like Tim's stuff is more about being efficient, right? So mm-hmm. I remember actually, because I remember looking at this post around like 2009 or 10, one of the most popular blog posts, I think on his blog or another one was like, how to like put as much as, as you can or like pack efficiently so you can put as much as you want in like one small thing. Okay. And so it's, it's, it's about travel, but it's completely like divergent paths because of the perspective that you bring. And I think that's what happens when you like start building an audience is like, you bring your own perspective and that's what makes you different. I think Tim is attuned to deliverables. You know, he cares about his audience enough to know that he wants to sort of deliver a lesson or deliver value. And that's a good, that's a good thing to consider from a podcast perspective. But from a traveler perspective, I like to not know what's coming. And I think I would argue that what you just said, like not knowing what's coming and, and looking at things from a more soulful, in a soulful way is actually bringing value. It's just bringing a different kind of value. Right. Like I think anyone who achieves a lot gets to this point when they're like, okay, they look around and they're like, what's next? I mean, I remember when, so I moved to San Francisco and had this goal of like working with people I was inspired by. Cause I was like, I actually remember I said, say this in a video I recorded last year. I was like, oh yeah, if I can work with these people, then I can tell myself I'm good enough at marketing. And so it was like, I was like trying to like fill that hole by like saying, Hey, I work with all these people. And I remember reaching that point in 2016 and being like, oh, I'm working with Tim, I'm working with Seth Godin, I'm working with Andrew Warner, like all of these people, what's next? And I was like, one of the Shark Tank sharks, Richard Branson, like, it's like, it was just like the next goal. And I realized, I was like, oh wait, this will never end. This will keep on going. And so that sort of like over the last few years started this inner journey of like learning, getting, or instead of like being it about, about a goal, like being about the craft and all of these different things. So I think like both perspectives are important. Maybe they just come at different parts of life. Yeah, I think the idea that this thing will just keep on going, the idea that if you keep being ambitious in a certain way that's not inward thinking and soulful, 
then you'll just be this giant monster eating everything in your path. You know, it's like the Pac-Man model for success. And then that goes back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier, just the idea of, okay, you make certain compromises to build your audience of 5 million people. And by you, I mean like a hypothetical Rolf Potts. Then you have, you're on the hook to keep these 5 million people satisfied. If it's not driven by your own vision, if it's not driven by what you consider to be soulful and important, then suddenly you may as well be employed by those 5 million people. They're the boss that's saying, it's being demanding, you know, that they want you to, this is another thing that when I wrote Vagabond and I said, I literally said in the introduction that there wasn't going to be a sequel to Vagabond. Because I think oftentimes movies are a good example. We've used a lot of Hollywood metaphors here. In a way, people go to see a sequel because in a way they want to see the move, the first movie again, but a little bit different. So mm-hmm. there are some sequels that are actually quite good, but oftentimes there's diminishing returns with sequels because they aren't coming from a soulful place. They're coming from an audience that says, we want to see more of this. So you have some sequels don't quite do it and, and, and some do, but that's that principle that the Pac-Man principle of, of growth doesn't always work. You just can't, you can't just keep gobbling up everything on your list of goals. At some point you, well, actually there's another thing that Tim and I talked about again, to use Tim as sort of the muse for this podcast, achievement versus appreciation. You know, at what point do you enjoy what you have? And you know, at what point, well, this is, this is actually another important thing to talk about, which is success as an abstraction versus success as something that can deepen your life. Because often there's a monetary label with success, and that's the only metric people use for success. And it can make people happy, but it could also make, turn people into mindless Pac-Men of their own success, you know, just gobbling up more and more and more and, and hoping the ghosts don't catch up. So this is, this is worth considering, I think, that Success is good, but appreciation of achievement is good too. And then finding a balance too, because it's not like you just, it's not like you just think, oh, okay, I've achieved success. So now I can appreciate it. I'll light a cigar and sit on my porch and watch the birds fly around. You know, that's not a bad strategy for a while, but eventually you'll get antsy, right? Um, it's like I say in Vagabond, it's the travelers who go to the beach and after three weeks they're bored and they need to actually do something dynamic with their lives. So what do you make of this? You know, as someone who has, tried to enhance people's success. And as someone who sees things from like a systemic perspective instead of a point by point perspective, what do you think, what do you make of this? This is really interesting that you asked that because it it applies so well for the last few months. So I launched my show in December, right? And I launched it without an audience. So one thing I realized about myself in the last few months is like, if I do something, I go for best. And I like, I almost like set these targets in a way where like whatever I achieve will not be good enough. Because it's just like unrealistic targets. And I, like, I just, that's how I've always been. So for me, like that's normal. I remember working with a client and we hit like number two on, on a list. And I was like, why don't we hit number one? So that's what, what I do, right? I like started my podcast and like in the back of my head, I was like, oh, like maybe like if people help me promote, I could actually reach rankings and I didn't. And so I felt really bad and like kind of like went away for uh, winter vacation back to SF and just took some time off and then came back. And we, we had figured out like a way to like grow a podcast on iTunes that like, other people weren't doing. And I was working with someone on that. And I remember we did it and like sent me a message on, on Monday night at like 10 30. He's like, bro, we're number 12 in business. What do you want to do? It's like, what? And so he, he did like, and I was like, step on the gas. Cause I want to see like how far this thing can go. And like at its height, we reached number 25 on all us podcasts. Wow. So I have a screenshot that's literally like studio podcast, studio podcast, me, Conan, Trevor, Noah, Oprah, like they just, it didn't stay there because you have to keep like either spending or whatever. But for me, it was really interesting because 
that was a goal that I expected to reach maybe a year out. And it created this thing where I was like, wait, what's next? That, that same thing, right? Like what's next? And I was like, that made me go back and like figure all these things out. Cause I was like, am I doing this just for like rankings or that goal? Or like, am I doing it for um, sort of like the conversation? And that's where I was like, oh, okay, now that I've already hit that metric, let's actually think about what I want out of this. So like changing the style of the interviews. One thing I also realized was like, I was so focused on going wide that like I was missing depth in conversations with people I was interviewing in people who were telling me like how much they like the show. Like I remember like someone was like, Oh yeah, I really like the show, but blah, blah, blah. It's like, cool. Where's the next sort of like validation. And this is something I'm curious about from your perspective. I feel like anyone who does something in public, there is sort of that insecurity or ego that they're trying to fill with it. And what I realized, and I'm glad I've realized this early on is no amount of success will fill that. Like that fulfillment has to come internally because you can st- spend your lifetime chasing success, right? And like the thing with success too is if you get it, then success can become its own prison. Rick Rubin has a podcast called The Broken Record. It's one of my favorite new ones. And he interviewed um, Andre 3000 of Outcast, And he was talking about how because of his success, like now, like when he goes back into the recording studio, it's so different. Like for a long time, he couldn't go into a recording studio. And now like if he publishes anything, it's like critique. And people like will tear it apart or whatever with social media and all. So I think like success in a way can become its own prison. Yeah, I think you said something about, you know, the venture of doing something in public, you know, mm-hmm. again, the, the public is the worst Pac-Man of all. And there's so many tricks you can use. We've sort of been in the clickbait era for more than five years now that really somehow as human beings, we have a lizard part of our brain that just sort of likes brief excitements. Again, that, and that our lizard brain is not connected to our soul at all, to use that soul, soulfulness metaphor again. And so you have to be careful about that. It's interesting that you, that you bring up Rick Rubin because that's a guy that I've respected. Like his career is, is so remarkable after all these years. And he's also been a person who has straddled these worlds. You know, he started a record company in his dorm and it was sort of an old school way of doing things. I mean, he, he really pioneered hip hop. And in, 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 before Rick Rubin, there, weren't, there wasn't really like a three minute hip hop single. It was like a 15 minute party jam before Rick Rubin. So he would be an interesting guy to talk about for your podcast, you know, creativity versus business, because he's so many, he's seen so many eras of this and he's been so dynamic in both the business and both the creativity angle. He's someone I want to interview. And if you're listening and can connect me to Rick Rubin, please let me know. Right. (laughs) Listeners send Rick his way. But the funny thing is the, the other person who came into my mind when you're talking about it is my nephew who's like TikTok famous. Are you familiar with TikTok at all? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my nephew, he, I, I'm in Kansas right now. I'm in rural Kansas. He <laughs> lives like a mile and a half away from me. He's 18 years old and he has this awesome TikTok account. And I come home from Kazakhstan, you know, where I'm sort of the, like the TED Talk in Kazakhstan and people are rolling their eyes because they only have 4,000 <laughs> Instagram followers. He has like a quarter of a million TikTok followers. He started in November, right? We're speaking in March. And I think one thing that he's done and this, this has been encouraging for me is that he's just been himself. And, and mm-hmm. he's a smart guy. He's a good looking guy. And so he does these videos where he'll, he'll draw pictures. He'll do really quirky art. Well, he'll take a drawing that he did when he was five and then draw it as an 18 year old. Or he'll go to the lathe and, and make something with wood. Or he'll do these funny little memes from TikTok. But he's not like trying to capture the trend of TikTok. Like, he, like he's not trying to do a, a thing on the latest dance. He's not trying to like, game the coronavirus meme so that he creates something new in this context. He's just being himself and people love him for it. 
again, maybe not everybody is going to have his skill set or his charisma, but it occurred to me that if somebody came in and tried to advise my 18-year-old nephew on how to be a better TikToker, it would probably ruin his experience of TikTok and his audience might be bewildered because they just like this very sincere guy. A lot of the comments say that he's wholesome. You know, it's not like he's a, he's broadcasting from church or anything, but he's just drawing these pictures. You know, he's just being this creative kid from the middle of the United States, like he should be. So I think that's interesting how you can use Rick Rubin as a metaphor on one hand, or you can use my nephew Luke as a metaphor on the other hand, as just someone who has a creative vision. And he's, he's smart enough to know that he sort of brands it by showing himself. You know, he's a good looking Mm -hmm. kid. But then in addition to being a good looking kid, that also means that you are seeing the creator of his stories. His stories are 15 seconds long, but they have a beginning, middle and end. And as your former guest SJ would tell you, you know, that's the old Aristotelian way of telling stories. Nobody taught Luke to do this. He's just instinctively done this and staying true to himself. He has mastered his, the business side by being authentic to himself. And in a way he's outdone his uncle because I like to think that my authenticity has driven, it didn't occur to me until we started this conversation, but yeah, by being true to my vision, that's what made vagabonding different. Hence, that's what made vagabonding successful. I'm sort of crappy at social media, but in a way it doesn't matter because social media will come and go, but my own vision and my own pursuit of soulfulness will take care of itself. Not in the sense that I'm going to be super rich, but that I can, you know, I can live simply on my little land here in Kansas and be happy in a way, you know, and so maybe I don't need to be a Pac-Man of my own success. I, I don't mind having a bigger audience getting more income, but having a connection with that aspect of creativity, which I suspect Rick Rubin does, Mm -hmm. uh, is key. So first of all, I think your nephew is actually the perfect example of what we were talking about earlier, like a creative who knows both sides, right? And in in what you said, there's two systemic sort of like things that I've always seen that are part of that. So one is there's there's this paper from George Soros about, um, what is it? Something in the human uncertainty principle. Reflexivity, something. and, And he talks about how, if you look at like, life, there's the objective reality of like things that are always real. And then there's a subjective reality of like, where like things go in like waves, right? It's like a pendulum swings to one side and then to the other. And most people who like make a lot of money in finance, like they, they look for times when the objective and the subjective matches or when they can see that. And then they bet on the, either going this way or that way. Right. Mm. So one thing that you mentioned about in terms of like so- social media, I think social media is going to go through that sort of like pendulum shift now where if you look at it, like in, when Instagram came about, people were just like sending, sharing their like normal stuff of like what they look like or whatever, right? And then there was a shift, especially in travel, of like photos that are really beautiful and like staged and like professional. And now when you go on Instagram, it's like, to me, it's so weird. Like if you go on someone's Instagram, it's literally like one professional photo after another of just them. Like how, what's happened to our, to humanity and like our ego that like, it's literally just like, here's me, here's me, here's me. I remember looking at someone's photos. This was crazy to me. They were talking about like being authentic and depression and the photo was like a professional photo. So I was like, you literally hired a photographer to go out and take photos of you looking sad. So you can post about being authentic and depression. <laughs> right. And so there's just like seeing these things. And I think what's happened is it's like, I think like that's sort of like reached that crescendo where people now want people to be authentic again. So that's where like Snapchat and like Snapchat stories and Instagram stories come about because those like you can be more real instead of a professional photo. So like a lot of people now, if you look at their Instagram, they don't really post that often, but they just post stories that are like them being whimsical, them being real. And I think that's what TikTok has capitalized on. It's just like people being real because the, maybe the younger generation is like, yeah, we don't want all those professional photos because that's not who we are. I think the second thing that 
TikTok, and I think TikTok has done really well, is this idea of like asymmetric returns in finance. So like with a little bit of effort, you can like get more. And I was reading about this where there's, there's something about the TikTok algorithm where if you look at like Instagram and Facebook, you have to have a big following to like get big exposure, right? In TikTok, the way they've structured it, I, I can't describe it. Anyone can go viral. Hmm. So, so the discoverability is way easier, right? Like if I go on Instagram without a following now, me being discovered is really hard. But if I do that on TikTok, it's much easier for some reason. And then if you're actually creating good content, then people will like follow you and it just becomes way easier to build a bigger following, which is why a lot of people are going towards it. Are you familiar with Marshall McLuhan's Understanding Media? I haven't read that, no. It was written in the 60s, I think. And it's so prescient in how it's, um, it predicted sort of the online world and the social media world in ways that, that are hard to understand now. That basically he, he coined this term, the medium is the message. That basically the, the, the message, I'm going to paraphrase it wrong, but you know, the message you get will really depend on what medium it is conveyed on. I think what happened with Instagram is that people didn't set out to be fake and airbrushed on Instagram. It's just that if you, if you posted 100 pictures of your trip around the world on Instagram, you'd get way more likes and engagement on the pictures that look like they were out of National Geographic magazine where you looked really super handsome and your wife looks super sexy, right? And so there was this drift where Instagram probably did and does create depression of a sort or, or sort of an artificiality of a sort where you're sort of performing your trip for Instagram because you want engagement. I've seen this myself. Like I've, I went uh, around the world last winter and I, I was posting to Instagram. I'm still doing some of those pictures now because it was hard to keep up with them. And I would write these little miniature essays under my Instagram pictures. Well, nobody reads those. You know, that I have about maybe a couple hundred people read those, maybe even less than a couple hundred people. In fact, I've recently, I, I posted, I think it's my most recent Instagram post. It's like sort of me in Sri Lanka in a minivan, feeling good of myself. I sort of like, look like a douchebag, right? So in the caption, I wrote a little essay about say, saying, yeah, I look like a douchebag, but this is why I have this smug look on my face. Well, somebody, somebody like instant messaged me directly and they're like, oh, that was, you look like a douchebag. You don't look handsome at all. And it's like, I literally said that in the case. You took the time to send me a direct message, but you didn't take the time to read the caption. So in a way, I think the medium is the message on Instagram and Instagram is all about the images. And so despite the mm -hmm. fact that I sort of tried to create an aesthetic of honesty through Instagram, in a way it doesn't work because a certain percentage of your viewers are only going to see that percentage of your photos that are beautiful enough for them to engage with. And so I think maybe that's why Instagram stories have appealed to a certain type of Instagram user. That's why TikTok appeals to young people. One fun thing that I've seen in looking at my nephew's TikToks is how nice people are compared to Twitter. I could mm -hmm. be wrong. Maybe they're just nice to my nephew. I don't know. I don't read, I don't look at that many TikTok accounts, but there are these different, I think the medium is the message. We have Twitter. Rage is one of the main vernaculars of Twitter. Very seldom on Twitter do people say, well, what did you mean by that? Or could you tell me more about that? Because that, I sort of disagree. No, it's just people raging at each other all, all the time on Twitter. So I think oftentimes we tend to condemn young people and teenagers. And so I was so heartened by how nice everybody was on TikTok. And maybe there's some mean parts of TikTok, but in a way, I think we have taken that McLuhan principle that the medium is the message and we've taken it times 100,000. We're inventing mm -hmm. a new technology every week that is its own medium and hence its own message. And we have no idea what it's going to bring out of us in human, in human nature. And so, yeah, so there's a certain superficiality that resonates in Instagram, a certain beauty standard that is clearly not realistic, but we're sort of stuck with it if we want our likes. And there's this certain rage factor. There's this lizard brain rage factor in Twitter. It's not the only thing. I, I use Twitter for 
following baseball, for example, but it suddenly Twitter realized maybe without intending to that it really that people can really harness their inner enraged person on Twitter. So who knows? I, I mean, like in 10 years, well, we, can have a, we can have a sequel to this podcast where we talk about all the new mediums that have been invented in the last 10 years and how they have channeled different parts of our human nature. You know, what's interesting on that too is like, sort of like when we started with like talking about Hollywood and we're talking about how like before consolidation was on the side of like the studios because there was like five big studios. I think that's what ha- what's happened online is like that consolidation is still there but it's now shifted to distribution because if you look at like social media, it's like Twitter, Facebook, Google, right? Like ads, podcasting, it's Apple and Spotify, the behemoths. Actually, this is a really interesting tweet. I'm going to read this. I just looked it up from this guy, Rick Burton. It's actually about the coronavirus. And he goes, everyone I know on Twitter saw this coming. Everyone I know on Facebook thought it wasn't serious. Everyone I know on Instagram is still on holiday. Everyone I know on LinkedIn thinks the economy will be fine. And he's talking about how like social networks are reality prisons. Because like, that's what everyone does, right? So I think like, that's what's happening is like, these platforms, because of the way they like, create them and control them, they can like, literally move your mood and like, construct this reality around you, especially with the newsfeed, right? Like, if you're just sitting on your couch on Facebook, scrolling, and everyone's like, oh yeah, coronavirus isn't a big deal, that's what you're going to believe because that's what everyone around you is saying. So social networks can like, create this reality around you now. Yeah, well, at the, at the time of my recording, I've done, I have been and will continue to do some coronavirus-themed episodes. And some of them are a reaction to Facebook, where I, I see, like, the Facebook arguments and declarations that we've seen for a decade now have never been attached that closely to reality. You basically have your accountant friend and sort of your yoga instructor friend arguing about politics or science, which are topics that they're not qualified to argue about. Well, now all of a sudden we have coronavirus is a time where we actually need to listen to medical professionals, right? That we actually do need to stop arguing and listen to people who know what they're talking about, who are looking at data and actually, and this is an important thing because again, the medium is the message in the vernacular of Facebook, admitting that you're wrong, that you were wrong about something means that you're wrong about everything. It's sort of this gotcha culture. Well, yep. scientists and, and, and doctors, they modify their conclusions based on data all the time. So if we're on, in this Facebook reflexivity where we say, oh, well, this doctor is useless because he was wrong last week. No, he's practicing science. You know, science is about using your data, drawing your conclusions, and then altering your conclusions based on data that's available. Coronavirus is a very, it's a novel virus. It's, it's, we don't have immunity to it. It's, it's very new. We're still figuring out how it works. So the reason that I, I talked to a doctor was sort of a, in response to what I was seeing in Facebook in that people were sort of in argument mode instead of let's listen, let's be adults and listen to what's happening mode. I'm curious, you, you can, I'm curious to know your thoughts about that, but then also is podcasting its own vernacular? Is it its own McLuhanian medium? Or is it just radio writ large? I think it is different from radio in the sense that I don't think anyone in the past could just have a radio show. So now like anyone can literally like go on Anchor and start their own podcast, right? So it's that same thing where like production is now like anyone can produce, but distribution and building an audience is becoming more consolidated because I think what happens with this is like, like all of these feedback loops. So like the people who are bigger have more data, so it's easier to get bigger. Right, like companies like Amazon, that's why like you have all of these big behemoth companies because the feedback loops and, and that's so that's the other thing about like social media is the acceleration is way faster. So like I can put out a podcast and it can go from like zero to hundred thousand like this, right? 
Right. Before, if you had a newspaper, you would like you couldn't do it because like you had like production costs and all these things with books and stuff. Now it's just like boom, it can go like this. I think like that's how it's a little different from radio. But yeah, I mean, I think if you look at there was a lot. It's interesting that to see where like where you can get the most updated news about coronavirus, for example. I think it's Twitter and podcasts. Like even news is behind. And I think the the reason. So these are two cultural things I've noticed, and it's not like from reading a bunch of people and stuff about coronavirus that are interesting is like one coronavirus. It's like, it completely goes against American sensibilities. So like American sensibility is let's say like you're being attacked by a terrorist, right? It's the next day you go out and you're like, I'm proud. Like we're not going to let a terrorist like make us stay at home. And yeah, yeah. in this case, it's literally like, no, you have to stay at home to stop it. Right. The other thing is like, let's say like someone's like, Hey, there's like this group of terrorists in your city or whatever. People would be like, Oh, we're scared. Right. This is something we can't see. And there was this really good tweet from uh, Balaji Srinivasan, who, who was the, probably one of the first few people posting about coronavirus, where he's talking about how, if you look at American defense, right, we have all of these things that we can do. We can like freeze bank accounts. We can like, we have national borders. We have surveillance. We have all these like military bases around the world and all of these things. None of them apply to the coronavirus. It's like, it's asymmetric. It doesn't have a work-life balance. It works 24-7. And it's like tearing through our society and we can't see it. So from, I think for most people, the reason they don't get it is because they don't see it and it doesn't fit into what their perception is of someone attacking our country. Yeah, and I think we're having, some, something is attacking our country, but we're, yet we're having our same old conversations. We're trying to stick a dagger in somebody else's argument when both of us should be listening to what's happening. Mm-hmm. And in a way, terrorism is an interesting example because it's asymmetric warfare, you know, it's different than like two industrialized nations massing tanks and, and implementing spies and having a traditional war, that basically terrorism is sort of a publicity stunt. There's an extent to which the national security did not really lessen that much on 9-11. We weren't in danger of being taken over by anybody. It was just some, some resourceful people made a very visible act. And that's actual tactical importance was way less important than yeah. its symbolic importance, right? And so that's part of what, so in an act of terrorism, we had to stick our chests out and say, yeah, we don't care. We're going to go shopping. We're going to get our fro-yo. You know, we're going to get our frozen right. yogurt and celebrate our defeat of terrorism. That literally doesn't work in this situation. That mindset, which interestingly, historically, 9-11 was sort of at the beginning of this nascent online slash what soon became social media era. This is the first global epidemic in the age of online discourse and social and, and social media. So the reason I brought it up is that it, it feels like the po- a podcast is actually very well suited to discuss nuance, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas Facebook and sometimes Twitter is not, although I've been getting some good information from Twitter. So it's just, yeah, it just, it, it just feels like Twitter hitches sort of a, and Facebook hitch onto this lizard brain thing, whereas maybe podcasting there might be a clickbaity aspect to podcasting, but podcasting, you have to listen to something for an hour. You have to listen to people lay things out. I would be interested, like off the top of my head, I don't know what my McLuhanian critique of podcasting would be if the limitation of Instagram is superficiality, mm-hmm. you know, is, is sort of creating a fake reality because people like fake reality. What is the podcast? I don't know. I don't know what the limitation is. I'm, listeners, send me, a, send me an email at deviatedrollfpods.com and we'll figure out what the limitations are. But in a way, it's more emblematic of how humans have always communicated. In the case of a podcast, it's like two people talking and a few thousand people listening without an, the ability to break into the conversation. But it does represent human conversation in ways that other forms of social media don't, you know, that, that we're yeah. basically other parts of human nation 
they harness that lizard brain, like social shaming part of ourselves that in hunter-gatherer societies, when human nature was being developed, that shame instinct served a purpose. Whereas now, you know, we are literally, we can literally destroy each other by tearing each other down on social media in that Mm -hmm. sense. I think that podcasting is less likely to um, result in that, Mm -hmm. but I don't think it's necessarily a panacea. I certainly like it. And it's, and it's the form, like I didn't get in any Facebook arguments with people who were posting nonsense about coronavirus on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like that's chasing after the wind, to quote the Bible. But a podcast, I felt like it did. You know, like listening to a smart but completely ignorant of medicine guy, i.e. me, Rolf Potts, talk to a, a doctor friend, my friend J.P. Santiago, who I've known since he was a teenager, who's not necessarily a coronavirus expert, but because he's a doctor, it's his job to, to stay on top of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. That literally, there's, there's hundreds of thousands of doctors around the world who literally have to be experts on coronavirus right now. And part of that expertise means they have to admit that they aren't experts and that they're still learning and that they're, they're comparing data with other doctors around the world. And so that had to be a part of our conversation. That literally had to be That's what I hope my audience understood, that regardless of what your Uncle Fred and your yoga instructor friend from college, Lotus Blossom, are talking about, at the end of the day, you have to listen to people who are looking at the data and making conclusions, regardless of whether or not they're going to hold, those conclusions are going to hold true when they have more data next week. Exactly. And maybe I think that's a conversation for round two, which is the limitations of different media and podcasting and everything. Yeah, yeah. And it's something that maybe an academic is probably doing a PhD on that right now. But it feels to me, I think one reason why I have drifted towards podcasting, I can continue to do it, although it, it hasn't monetized a huge amount, is that it allows me to sort of embrace these nuances instead of being declarative and, and, and abbreviated and as we are in social media. It allows me to actually have conversations. And that's actually why it's been fun to talk to you today because I don't have an outline. <laughs> I'm writing notes to myself, but I'm not having an outline. So I can, I can think out loud in ways that even in my own podcast, I'm not used to doing. Glad to hear that. It was, a, it was sort of different for me too, with like not having any notes or a plan. And yeah, it was, it was great. Well, it'll be interesting to re-listen to it and and see what ground we covered, you know, because I think sometimes an outline-driven podcast follows the outline and hence stays on topic, right? Whereas a normal conversation that you might have in the street or with somebody you meet at a party or at a gathering doesn't. And so, in a sense, we've done some callbacks in this conversation, but yeah, we drifted a little bit. Suddenly, Marshall McLuhan's book, Understanding Media, came into, into play, and I didn't expect it would, but it's an interesting thing to check out. I think you can, there's a text version you can find for free online, or you can... Yeah. Uh, you can help the McLuhan estate by buying a copy. I'm going to go find it. And if you're listening, um, let us know what you thought of this. Because it was, I think it was different for both of us for our respective shows and stuff. And we'll see, depending on the feedback, if we do a round two. All right. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Rolf. You betcha. Hey, it's Sachit again. If you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did, make sure you thank our guests and let them know what you thought. There's easy links to all of their social media Twitter, Instagram, everything else in the show notes. Secondly, make sure you head on over to creators.show to get new episodes, exclusive guides, partner deals, and additional bonuses. See you next week.